Take your Bible. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John and the fourth chapter today. And we're going to have you look at a few passages this morning in the message. But we'll start here in 1 John chapter 4. Just give us a little foundation for the message. 1 John chapter 4. I'd like to read starting in verse 7. Bible says in 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Perhaps the greatest words ever penned about love were penned not on a Valentine's Day card by Hallmark or not penned by some young man who desperately wanted to communicate to the girl of his choice. But the greatest words ever penned about love were penned in John 3.60. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is a very simple word, but it seems to also be a very complex word. There are people in the world who love God and hate people. And there are people who hate God and love people. It's complex. For some, love is fun. For others, it's frustrating. Some love is fickle. Others, it's quite fascinating. For some, love is fiction. Others, love is fact. For some, love is fulfilling. While others, love seems to be a failure. Some people love to help, some people love to hate. Some people love to get, others love to get. For some, love is supreme, for others, love is silly. To many, love is wonderful, but to some, love is a waste. So are there answers to this complexity of love? What is true love? Is there such a thing as real, genuine, authentic love? Well, since the Bible declares here in 1 John 4 and verse 8 that God is love, then we must go to God's book to discover the biblical conclusions about love. So let's start this morning with a definition of love. How do we define love? Well, love in the New Testament is defined by three Greek words. 
Now, these words define quite different types of love. Oftentimes, we use different words to describe the same thing. For example, someone says, hey, were you in first hour with Dr. Shetler? Yeah. He was really mad, wasn't he? Yeah, he was pretty upset. Yeah, he was really angry. Well, the word mad, upset, and anger are all defining the same emotion, right? Something kind of got in Dr. Shetler's craw there this morning, first hour, and he didn't like it, and so he was mad. He was upset. He was, uh, he was angry. All three of those words describe the same emotion. By the way, he didn't get mad first hour. I'm making this up. But the three words in the Greek that are used for love are quite contrasting. In other words, often we use different words to describe the same thing. But in the case of love, God uses three different words to describe three contrasting kinds of love. We have the word eros. We get our word erotic from this Greek word eros. It describes an egoistic kind of love, a selfish love. We would call it today lust, getting something, egoistical, erotic, eros. Much of what is talked about today in the world when it comes to Valentine's Day is an eros kind of a love. All it is is an opportunity to express oneself and their selfish desires. Much of Valentine's Day love is really an eros kind of a love. But there's another word in the New Testament, and that's the word phileo. And the word phileo has the idea of a mutualistic kind of a love or a friendship love. The city of Philadelphia comes from this word philos, the city of brotherly love. And there's much love that's expressed in our world. There ought to be much love on this campus that's expressed in that philos kind of a love, a mutualistic love, a care one for another, a shared appreciation for one another. But then there's a third word, and this is the word that Jesus introduced to the Greek culture. Up until the time of Christ, no one was aware of this kind of love. They were familiar with the eros kind of love, the, the, the egoistical. They were familiar with the philea kind of love, the mutualistic kind of love. But Jesus introduced this word agape, this altruistic love, a love that gives regardless of the response. It is this kind of love that Christ introduced into this world when he died for sinners, when he died for people who would never even ask him to forgive them. So is there a place then in the Bible, we have these definitions, but is there a place where these kinds of love are described? 
where we can see them in action. I mean, okay, egoistical love. Well, okay, mutualistic love. Okay, altruistic love. Well, uh, don't those kind of overlap a little bit? Or how, do, how does that play out? I mean, okay, we have a definition, but what is the description of love? Well, take your Bible. Let's go back to 2 Samuel. And back in 2 Samuel, I believe, I believe we see demonstrated a eros kind of love. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, we'll look at an Old Testament story that describes or depicts the New Testament word eros. Chapter 13 of 2 Samuel verse 1. It came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come, and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it, and eat it at her hand. So Amnon lay down, and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat it at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down. And she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have out all men from me. And they went out every man from him. And Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber, that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. And when she had brought them in unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly? And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Eros. The word love is used several times in the passage. But it's an eros love. Ammon did not love Tamar. He lusted after Tamar. Because once he fulfilled his physical desires, he hated her. The Bible says love never faileth. 
So this was not true love. This was not the definition of an agape kind of love. It's a definition of an eros kind of love. It's, a, it's an egoistical love. I want to get something for me. It's a lust kind of love. And it's described sadly here in 2 Samuel chapter 13. What about the phileo kind of love? Go back a few pages to 1 Samuel and there would be a number of places I suppose we could go and I kind of contemplated where to go for this. But look at 1 Samuel chapter 18 because I love the bond here of phileo kind of love between David and Jonathan. In verse 1 it says, It came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, and Saul took him that day and would let, let him go no more to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. You can study this relationship more, if you wish, between David and Jonathan. Most of us are familiar with it. But it's an example of two young men who were knit together in their heart. They were knit together in their soul. They had some commonality, obviously, as, as Jonathan was the son of Saul and David was the, 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 the servant of God serving there under Saul as the sweet psalmist of Israel. There was a relationship that had developed, but as Saul gets farther and farther away from God, the soul of Jonathan, the soul of David are knit together. And they make this covenant. And the covenant was that Jonathan said, David, if something happens to me, Jonathan was no dummy. Jonathan knew that the hand of God had come off of his father. He knew that the power of God was gone from Saul. And he knew that Saul was no longer under God's protection. And he knew that in one of these battles, Saul was going down. Because God had already anointed David as the next king. That happened in chapter 60. And so Jonathan's a thinking guy and he's thinking... I'm not going to be the next king. By rights, he would have been next in line to take the throne. But God had already decided, no, David's going to take the throne. So Jonathan's thinking, okay, my dad's going down and I'm not going to be the next king. So I'm probably going down with my dad. And any enemy that would attack a country would certainly want to kill the king. And if they could king, kill the king's son as well, the, the country would be without leadership. So Jonathan's processing all this. And he's thinking, I'm probably going to get killed with my father. And so I need to make provision for my family. Who can I trust? And it was David. And so Jonathan and David make a covenant and Jonathan asks David, if anything happens to me, I want you to take care of my family. And David makes that promise. They make that covenant. That's how Mephibosheth ends up in David's house at the king's table later. Because Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, who's lame on his feet. That all began because of this covenant that David and Jonathan had made together in that phileo kind of love. That love for one another, their souls were knit together. What a beautiful thing that is. When we develop a friendship 
that in some cases is stronger than family, stronger than a brother, stronger than maybe the people who should love us in that way. A mutualistic kind of a love, an appreciation, a gratitude, one for another that would say, I would do anything for that person. I would, I would help that person in any situation. Well, where do we see the agape love demonstrated? Well, that's pretty easy. We could just pick out any passage about the Lord, right? Because he was agapic love. He was the one who left his father, came to this earth and died on a cross for us. And the Bible says in Romans chapter five and verse six, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, okay, but that's kind of unfair, because we're not God. We're not perfect. We, we can't love with the kind of love that God has. But he's commanding us to. He's saying we're to have this agapic kind of love. He's saying we're supposed to have this love that demonstrates unselfishness and willingness to, to help others without any hope of return to ourselves. So where do we see it demonstrated? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 10. And Jesus tells a story here in Luke chapter 10 that demonstrates for us an agapic kind of love. Luke chapter 10. Jesus had been asked some questions here by some who perhaps were trying to trip him up. He was asked the question, who is my neighbor? And in verse 30, Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Wow, here's a different kind of love. I mean, this story doesn't give all the details, so we have to kind of think along with it. But here's a man that comes upon a complete stranger, someone perhaps he's never met before, or at least he, he, he had no relationship with this man by the side of the road that had been beaten up and left for dead. But out of love, out of compassion, he goes to him, he goes where he is. He binds up his wounds. He pours in some medicine, some oil and wine. He puts him on his beast. He, he takes him to an inn. He's, 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 he's being uncomfortable here. He's, he's, he's taken out of his schedule. He, he's not getting things done on his to-do list right now. He's going out of his way to help someone in need who he doesn't even know. Takes him to an inn. Provides his lodging for him takes out some extra money in the morning before he leaves and says, if he needs anything else, take care of it. You know, we don't know these men ever met again. We don't know when the guy woke up who was badly injured if, if, if he even got to say goodbye or to say thank you. 
But it doesn't seem to matter to this Samaritan. You see, why? Because he was responding out of the right kind of love, the agape love that doesn't care whether there's a return or not. It doesn't care whether there's a thank you or not. It doesn't care if there's a response or not. It's an agape love. He gave, he invested without any desire for return. So we see the definition of love. We see some description or demonstrations of that love. But I want you to see this morning, most importantly, there's a decision to love. Naturally, there's a desire for the eros kind of love. It's part of who we are. We, we like to get stuff. We like people to do something for us. We like to be served. We, we like to take. We, we want to be entertained. We, we, we want to be amused. We, we, we want people to, to meet our needs, to satisfy our desires. That, that's just natural to have an heiress kind of love. Humans desire a certain amount of phileo kind of love. Nobody's an island. Not everybody has the same number of friends, but everybody needs friends. Everybody needs somebody they can put some confidence in, have some trustworthiness with, and can share perhaps some things going on in their life. There, there's a desire even in the secular world for some companionship, for some friendship, for some camaraderie at the workplace. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a, a certain part of us humanly that desires a phileo kind of love, a mutualistic kind of love. But to have divine love to have agape love is going to take an empowerment by the Holy Spirit. It's going to take something beyond our human desires. It's going to take God working in and through us. And it is a decision. You see, eros is a decision. It's a decision to lust. It's a decision to live like Amnon did. He made a, a decision to rape his sister. He decided to do it. Oh, and there was the cousin, Jonadab, who encouraged it and planned it all out for him so he could. But he had to make that decision. He thought it hard to do anything to Tamar because she was a virgin. She was pure. In fact, later in the chapter, we didn't read that far. She was clothed, she was, she was adorned with a, a coat of divers colors, which the king's daughters who were virgins were apparelled, the Bible says. So she wasn't ashamed of her virginity. She was pure and wore a garment that indicated it. So when Amnon saw her, he thought, boy, she's beautiful and I'd like to, I'd like to get somewhere there. But nah, she, she's not available for my kind of lust. She's godly. So Amnon had to make a series of decisions to step over all that, it's an easy decision. It doesn't require any real willpower or spiritual fortitude to just follow your natural instincts. We all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The world today to, to go out and, and wine and dine somebody and then sleep with them, that takes no spiritual fortitude. That's just following the animal instincts. 
That's just doing what comes natural to the sinful flesh. And by the way, every day, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, lust will control our lives. This I say then, Paul said, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Amnon made a decision to lust. Samson made a decision to lust. David made a decision to lust. Joseph made a decision not to. It's a decision. We can decide. I'm going to follow my, my fleshly instinct. I'm going to follow my lustful desires. I'm going to follow my old flesh. I, that's a decision. You say, I don't know what happened. I just, all of a sudden, I just got in a situation and I sinned. No, no, you made a decision. You made a decision to sin. You make a decision for Eros kind of love. Joseph made a decision to say no. When the opportunity was there, when, the, when Potiphar's wife tried to entice him into a similar situation like, like Amnon and, and these others, Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And he refused to be with her. He refused to be by her. He, he got out of there when he saw her coming. He made decisions against the eros temptation. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. Paul told Timothy, keep thyself pure. That's a decision. The psalmist made a decision. I'll set no wicked thing before my eyes. I'm not going to look at some things. Why? Because if I look at that, I'm going to make a decision to act on what I see. Mine eye affects my heart. It also affects a lot of other things. And so when we make a decision to lust, it's on us. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye, every man know how to possess his vessel, his body, in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence as the Gentiles, which know not God. See, our love today that can be demonstrated on this campus between opposite genders should not resemble what's going on outside this campus. It should be different. Because we're to resist that decision to get me. I want gratification. We're to resist that, as Joseph did. So it's a decision. Paul said it pretty dramatically, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Mortify, mortician, mortuary, put them to death. Mortify. Therefore, your members that are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Every one of those things is talking about sexual sin. Say covetousness? Yeah, you look it up. Look up that word. It means coveting someone else's body. It's idolatry. We're asking for something that doesn't belong to us. We're, we're yearning for something that isn't ours, something that God has said no to in our life. And when we have that egoistical kind of love, we want this for us. We, God says, no, put that to death. Mortify that. Make a decision. 
Eros love is a decision. It's a tragic decision. It's a fatal decision. Well, likewise, phileo love is a decision. To care about someone, to build a friendship, to have your soul knit with another for the furtherance of the gospel or for the, the fact of life to, 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 to have some harmony and, and, and some unity, that's a decision. Friends are a decision. Well, I don't have any friends. Well, it's your decision. He that hath friends must show himself friendly, right? So God says that's a decision. You have to make that decision. If you want a mutualistic kind of a love, you don't sit in a chair and say, well, I hope somebody comes over and is my friend. No, God says, make a decision. Go be friendly. Go make a friend. Go be a friend. Go invest in someone else. Put your life into their life. Look, we heard it yesterday. You don't have to be at odds with everybody on campus. You, you, you can get along. Uh, Paul said, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's a decision. You, you can decide that you don't like somebody. You can decide that, uh, that, that, that I'm not going to be friends with that person. But likewise, on the other side of that, you can decide that even though someone is different than you, and even though someone may be a different personality, you can decide, I'm going to... I'm going to invest in that person. You say, well, they just, they just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Well, try praying for them. When I was in college, there was a young man. We were in the same class. I didn't like him. He was a good student. He was an outstanding student. 4.0 kind of guy. I don't like those kind of people. <laughs> he was the kind of student that he was, he was smart and he knew it. And he liked to let you know how much he knew it. He would always answer the question in class. Teacher asked a question, his hand would be up right away. He knew the answer and the answer was always right. And, and to me, he was very proud of that. And I didn't like it. And, you know, in homilage class, teachers would say, would anybody like to comment on this message? He always had a comment. There was always something wrong with your message. I mean, that's, that's who he was. Well, you can see why I wouldn't like him, right? And we just, we didn't have a lot in common. I mean, we, we didn't, I didn't want to cross paths with him. I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't like him. To me, he was one of those guys that just, he might as well have been on staff, you know? Brown nosing all the teachers all the time. Never got any demerits, but he sure handed out a lot of them. It's one of those guys you, you love to hate. And quite frankly, I'd have to say my level of relationship with him was one of hate. I, I couldn't stand it. And when you know it, my home church hired him as an assistant pastor. So now... I mean, I've graduated, I'm an evangelist, but every time I go home, I gotta look at the guy <laughs> on the platform, you know? And it, I, just, I just had a problem. 
And I don't know if he felt the same way about me. I have no idea. But I did not like it. And one night I was listening to Curtis Hudson preach. I only heard Curtis Hudson preach two or three times in my life. But I was, I, he was preaching and he was preaching about unforgiveness and bitterness and, you know, these kinds of things. And somewhere in that sermon, he said, there's probably somebody right now that you could identify in your life that you are not right with. And boy, I mean, this person I've just described to you, his face came to my mind. And I thought, yeah, I got one. Shoot him if I could, you know. <laughs> and boy, he, he preached. And when he got to the end of the message, he said, I want everybody in this room right now to get out of your seat, turn around and kneel at your chair. And I want you to pray for that person that you can't stand. And everybody got up, turned around. And I thought, well, I better do this. I didn't want to do it. But I turned around. I, I said, okay, Lord, be with so-and-so. Help him have a good day. <laughs> Bless his life, you know. Make it a short life. Make it a good one. You know? <laughs> and I thought I was off the hook. You know, I thought I prayed for him. Okay. I sat back down. And then Dr. Hudson said, now, you put that person on your prayer list and you pray for him every day. I didn't want to do that. But the Lord said, do that. And I did. And I put him on my prayer list. And every day I prayed for him. And this went for months, years. I found myself praying for his wife, for his kids. I prayed for his ministry. I found myself praying for him in, 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 in different ways that were almost shocking to me. But I still didn't think I liked him. But I was just doing what the Holy Spirit had told me to do in a service. I was praying for him. And one day I was in Chicago at a teacher's convention. And I was doing a workshop or something. And I had to go from one workshop to another, and it was a large convention center. It was a, a you know, hotel kind of a convention center, and I was walking to my next workshop. And people were everywhere. I mean, all these teachers and people there. And I'm walking, and all of a sudden, about uh, maybe 50 yards from me, I see this individual walking toward me. And as soon as I saw him, my pace quickened and I went right to him and I called him my name and I held him my hand. So good to see you. How you doing? How's, how's, how's your wife? How are the boys? And, and all of a sudden it hit me. I thought, why am I asking that? I hate this guy. <laughs> what had happened? I prayed for him. God says it's about praying for your enemies. And I don't even know if he was my enemy. I made him my enemy from my perspective. But I'm telling you something. I still pray for him. And every time I see him, we have a wonderful relationship. Oh, we're different. Big time different. We even believe some things differently. 
theologically. I pray for him. I pray for his wife. She's been through cancer. I pray for his boys. One of his boys' wives has cancer. I can tell you with all my heart this morning, if he were here, I would say, this is my friend. It's a decision. And that person that's rubbing you the wrong way in your room or that person that's rubbing you wrong on campus or that teacher or that person back home or that former whatever, listen, you can change that. It's a decision. It's a a decision to have eros love. It's a decision to have phileo love. And it's a decision to have agape love. Paul said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Paul knew when he went to some of those towns, they were going to stone him. (laughs) He knew they were going to try to kill him. But he was going to go anyway. He said, I'm going to spend and be spent for you. Doesn't matter what the response is. I'm on a mission from God to to go to all the world and preach the gospel. And and Paul determined, I'm going to love regardless of the response. I'm going to love regardless of, of the result. Go to Acts chapter 7. This was alluded to yesterday, but I want us to to look at the passage. Acts chapter 7, the very end of it, is the stoning of Stephen. In verse 54, Stephen has just concluded his message, his sermon. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Just think about that for a minute. That, that's not, I don't think that's figurative. I don't think they just kind of gritted their teeth against him. I think they gnashed on him with their teeth. I believe they came up and bit him. They were so angry. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. They stoned this man, Stephen, to death. And Saul is standing there, having ordered this execution, having ordered this killing. And Stephen, as he dies, looks back. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, lay not this sin to their charge. The very thing Christ said on the cross. Why? Because Stephen made a decision to have agape love. And as was said yesterday, it made the difference in Saul. Oh, moments later, he's going his way to Damascus. Find some more of these heretics. We know the story well in chapter 9. 
where God hijacked that journey. And Saul of Tarsus was wonderfully saved. I believe in large part because he saw agape love. He saw a man that should have been bitter, should have been angry, should have been frustrated as he died, accusing Saul, but instead lay not this sin to their charge. Has anyone seen agape love in your life? Would our kind of love make a difference in somebody's life today? I want the drama club to come and they're going to give our closing illustration. So as they get in place, I want you to think. Who in my life? Maybe here on campus. Maybe at work this afternoon. Maybe out in the community tomorrow. Are all, is all they're going to see an eros kind of a love? What can I get? Are they just going to see a, a good form of love, a phileo kind of love that, yeah, I came to your door, I, I'd like to give you a tract, I, I, I want to see you in heaven. Is, is that enough? Or are we willing to go a little bit further into agape love? Being a third grade teacher can be challenging. Don't get me wrong, I love doing it, but nine-year-olds have their own share of challenges, different abilities, different personalities, and different circumstances at home. This year's class is no different. Have you guys bought your Valentine's Day cards yet? Cards? Who wants cards? I want candy. Ugh, girls. First you want candy, then you want flowers, then you want a diamond ring. I'm gonna get you a card. Uh, I'll, I'll take her candy. Noah, you're so lame. Do you even know girls exist? Well, of course. The ones with black jelly beans. <laughs> <laughs> I think Noah likes you, Liza. Shut up, David. And who's your girlfriend? Miss Yoder's my girlfriend. She's the prettiest teacher in the whole world. Man, you are one sick puppy. <laughs> they are unpredictable. One minute they're laughing, the next they're crying, up, down, all over the place. They are definitely unpredictable. But there is one boy in my class, though, that is predictable. I wish it wasn't that way, actually. Ethan comes from a single-parent home. Ethan's father um, passed away when he was just two years old. It's hard, really hard. I try, I really do, but working two jobs six days a week to pay the bills just doesn't give me enough time to be both mom and dad. Ethan is a good boy. He's just very quiet and shy. He keeps everything inside. Sometimes I struggle to know what's going on in that little mind of his. At times, he... He surprises me, like last week. He came home from school one day and said, Mom, I want to make all the kids in my class a Valentine's card. <laughs> I tried to talk him out of it. I mean, I don't have enough money to even get the materials to help him make Valentine's Day cards. But, but that wasn't the real issue. I just knew that he wouldn't get as many cards as the other kids. 
I didn't want him to be disappointed. But as kids usually do, he insisted. So I bought him the paper, the glue, the magic markers, and for the next two nights, he spent hours making those cards. Valentine's Day is always a fun day at school. I decorate the room, we play games, and we eat chocolate cupcakes with red and white icing. It does make the kids more hyper than usual, but it's such a fun day for them. Ethan was up unusually early that morning. He took all 32 Valentine's cards and packed them neatly into his backpack. <laughs> the boy didn't even want breakfast. He went to school 30 minutes early. <sighs> My heart ached for him all morning. I just knew that this day would be very rough for him. So after, after work, I ran to the store, got him his favorite chocolate chip cookies and a glass of milk. Well, just to try to cheer him up a little. The party was a success. The kids exchanged valentines and the cupcakes did not disappoint. After the dismissal bell rang, they were as hyper as ever. That's so cool. Yeah, look at this. <laughs> look at this one. Yeah. Look at this one. Ooh, X's and O's. Wow, David. She really likes you. Whoa, no, slow down, bro. You're going to make yourself sick. No, I'm going to eat the black ones. I'll eat the rest later. <laughs> I watched as the kids excitedly made their way home from school. And there was Ethan. Behind the rest as usual. His hands were empty. Mommy bought you your favorite chocolate chip cookies, Ethan. And I have a nice glass of milk. Not one. Not a single one. I had a card for everyone. I didn't forget one. Us. He did not forget a one. It's 515 says, and that he died for all. And he is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God would have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. As Jesus Christ lived on this earth, he practiced what he preached. At no time in the Gospels do we find that he passed by someone who needed him. Whether it was a man up in a tree, a woman by the well, a widow at a funeral, or even the thief on the cross next to him, Jesus never forgot those around him. Are we forgetting anyone this Valentine's Day? Christ challenges us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. Like Ethan, let's be sure that we don't forget a one. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. As we've learned today, if we're not careful, that love is just an eros love. What am I going to get? Or it's just a phileo love. Yeah, I'll give something to get something. But are we willing to have an agape love? Whether there's anything back to us in return or not, I'm going to give. That's the kind of love that's going to make a difference in this world this weekend.
and on this campus this semester.